Welcome to the show. Welcome to a very special episode of the TechBomb podcast. Today, my guest is Guillaume Caban, aka G, aka the crazy professor of growth. G needs no introduction, but for the handful of people who actually don't know him, he started his career at Apple, then became VP of growth at companies like Drift, Segment, and Mention. He's also an advisor to companies like G2, Kudu, Abstract, Metadata, MonkeyLearn, and many others. He recently started a syndicate with some of his former buddies and colleagues from Segment, which was acquired for $3 billion not too long ago. And Guillaume is the current vice president of growth at Gorgeous. In this conversation, G and I talk about all things growth, but specifically setting up your growth roadmap and running high quality growth experiments. Guillaume drops many nuggets throughout this conversation, so I recommend you to listen to the end. Give me a thumbs up and subscribe to the TechBomb Podcast YouTube channel. Enjoy. Three, two, one. Super glad for you to be on and thanks for uh, taking the time. Uh, I am super pumped about all these questions I can throw at you. Been wanting to do that for a long time. And if you don't mind, I will jump right in. Let's go. Let's go. So here's the first one. Um, what do you think made you as successful as you are today? Mm, that's a good question. I think the easy answer is I'm a bit crazy. Uh, <laughs> the longer answer is I'm a, I'm a risk taker. I have a pretty strong risk appetite uh, for my professional ventures uh, and for what I do within the company. I'm not too afraid of being fired uh, when something goes wrong. I am passionate about what I do. I'm looking for big wins in all aspects of my life. Looking for those outlier effects um, has enabled me um, to um, to find some of those wins. That's, i say, the first part, the first half. The second half is, oh, many people can do that. Right? The problem is that obviously that doesn't ha- the, the wins don't happen that often. So my my moat, my competitive moat, is doing multiple things at once so that there are some wins that happen more frequently. You see, when you have one job and you have a few opportunities to do big, uh, uh, take risks and go for big wins, you know, a few times a year, I'm going to do that two, three times in parallel. Now, I don't have three jobs, but as we're going to see, I have multiple business ventures in parallel, which enables me to find things that work and then double down on those things. It sounds like a very anti-fragile strategy, which means that if one of the things goes bust or doesn't work out, you have a couple other avenues you can ride. Yeah, it's it's the VC model. Like I'm a VC of my time. If you look at what VCs do, like often like people say, hey, like you should go full time on this. Well, VCs do exactly the opposite. They're all very smart. Why do general partners at Sequoia and Dreesen don't join full-time a company most like 99% of the time. It's because they understand the principle of hedging bets, right? And, and basically not putting all your eggs in the same basket. I do exactly that. I see my time. You see, Kevin, I think there's like, I, I plan on working about 40 years between the age of 20 and the age of 60, roughly, right? Um, if you have like, you, you do four year stints at every company, that's 10, 10 stints total, 10 companies total, right? That's not nearly enough. Mm-hmm. And you gotta be very deliberate about the time that you spend. Is this the best thing you could be doing? And so 
I, I very quickly realized I, I can't, a few things, I can't be dedicating that much time fully to any one project because if it fails, that's 10% of my working life that goes into smoke. It makes, it makes perfect sense. But I think you have a certain clarity about that and about your time that many people don't. And I wonder, where does that mindset, that risk-taking, diversifying, um, and, and outlier mindset, where, where do you think that comes from? Is that nature or nurture? Mm. Mm. Just like you, I, am a, uh, uh, I come from a, a familial background of multiple cultures. Right, that helps see things differently. Mm -hmm. All right, my mom's American, my dad's French, grew up in in France, went to the U.S. quite often. That helps a lot. Uh, understand and see the world uh, differently, and I think that's one. But I've I've always been a tinkerer. My entire life, I've been a tinkerer, tinkering with things. You know, I've started doing like websites in the mid '90s. And finding some uh, some things that work there. You know, we're not going to go back the entire path <laughs> there, but I've been tinkering with a lot of things um, in life and in business, um, and that's that's just a deep passion I have. I, I like to say I am the I am the master of rabbit holing. Uh, <laughs> uh, you find something where I'm passionate, I'm going to rabbit hole in there forever, right? Uh, and that's. That's something I'm cognizant about, but that I think is also a superpower. I can get passionate about most things and I will try to be better than the random person in that field pretty fast. And then I'll move on. I share that with you. I totally get it. And so how let's tie the bridge to growth. Why do you apply that tinkering mindset? To growth, why do you think it is about growth that pulls you in? Well, if you look into why I got into growth, um, I after I left Apple, uh, I went into a few startup ventures, and eventually I landed in in uh, InfoSec, uh, IT security uh, software. Long story short, uh, the product I was working on as a marketer uh, failed technically, but the launch was a pretty big success. Uh, so that's unfortunate, and so then I realized I have to ramp up my technical skills. I need to understand those things. And the InfoSec products are some of the hardest that come by. And so I started working with uh, security engineers for a year and a half to understand the product. And I learned a lot of things which are very relevant to growth. When you look into all that happens in the world of security and phishing and scamming, a lot of those techniques are marketing techniques. Hmm. When you're trying to send, when, when a scammer sends emails to an audience to convince them that they have won a prize and they're going to get the prize only if they wire some money, that's a marketing pitch. And you're trying to, people to, get, to get people to convert. Okay, now it's totally illegal and illegitimate, but the, the mechanisms are the same. You got to recognize that. Okay. And then, you know, we had the, the second uh, uh, wave of the uh, financial crisis in Europe hit. Um, and, and so that company went, went bust. Uh, and I created my own startup where I managed the engineering team and the product team. So I became quite technical. Mm -hmm. When I went back into marketing full time, I realized there are very few marketers who have a good technical understanding. And that was going to be my moat. Okay. 
Because if you look at marketing, if you look at B2B SaaS, most products already exist. You're very rarely creating a product that's, I know, is completely alone and, and there is no category. Right. So you're competing with other products. And you're just trying to convince the market that your product is better. I truly believe that in a competitive market, if you do things the same way, so you're going to do ads on Facebook, you're going to do uh, some emails with Marketo, you're going, to, you're going to get pretty much the same results. And so your competition is only through the product, not through the marketing. The marketing is not creating value. If I am a marketer and I want to succeed, I need to create value. And the way that I can compete is by bringing my ability to manage engineers on marketing problems. And that happened exactly at the same time that growth started to emerge. So in that sense, I was extremely lucky. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I, I think you, you keep that kind of balance between technical ability, but also a certain creativity um, until today. And I think you have really mastered that. So if say we say there is a say you work with a new startup that has yep. product market fit, growth starts to come in organically, you come on yep. as an advisor or you start working whatever capacity with them. What are the first things that you look at if you want to set them on the trajectory for hyper growth? Absolutely. And that's, I think what you said is really important to understand. I joined um, just um, after product market fit when there's this initial phase of growth and all the early adopters are confirming that there is, there is a need and the product matches that need. And things slow down. The growth start, starts to slow down. And you need to actually have the second inflection point. That's my job. That's exactly my job is to create the second inflection point from 5 million in revenue, roughly, to about 50 million, right? That's my sweet spot. And generally what I'll do is I'll try to understand how can we um, engage with the audience in a way that we create value. I get back to that. It's the same thing. I'm going to do things differently so that my acquisition strategies have a uh, negative uh, marginal CAC incentive, which means the each new customer costs you close to zero or as close to zero as possible. That's very important. Okay, why, why is that? Because if you look at this 5 to 50 phase, you're trying to scale things quite a bit. You're going to go for 2x, 3x year over year. Right? Most marketing strategies are have, let's say, an increasing CAC issue. As you grow, you exhaust the early audiences. You're going to spend more and more on paid. Your uh, outbound emails performance is going to go down. And efficiency just goes down. And so you're churning through more and more of, of the market. So CAC goes up, which in turn, interestingly, forces companies to increase the ACV to compensate for the increasing CAC. Okay? My job and my competitive approach is exactly the opposite, is to have diminishing CAC or, or positive scaling effects, right? Whether the CAC is cheaper and cheaper. And so I'm going to try and find how can we create that? How can we create those, those growth loops, those spin wheel effects, right? And what kind of value can we create very often? How can we create the either real value or at least a good perception of value? And that generally requires engineering talent and generally means front loading the cost of marketing right? Uh, instead of having a running cost. So example, think of mini products. When you built a mini product, 
where people can like self-serve discover and get some value, some insights, you are building, you're putting some effort, which means you're front loading. And if people get value, if they're convinced, then that acquisition has cost nothing after the product experience. Right, so that has a positive scaling. As more people experience the product, the costs are offset by the volume. Right, and this is interesting. I love how you phrase it. That um, in in the initial phase, you want to more or less not be super CAC efficient. And I think this is something that that a lot of um, people outside the valley, I would say, uh, or outside of a strong uh, startup ecosystem, don't understand. It's like they look at companies at Uber in the beginning, like they make so many, like so, such a high loss, right? They lose money. How can that be a good business? But in a certain sense, they're just deferring profitability for more mm -hmm. growth, right? And I think in, mm -hmm. a, in a certain sense, you can, you can transfer that principle to early stage startups as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that, uh, look, for example, at uh, Gorgeous, the help desk for e-commerce merchants, we're in a competitive market. We have direct competitors like Zendesk and indirect competitors like our customer who got acquired for a billion dollars a few days ago by Facebook. When I did the analysis of customer, we realized they had raised more than 10 times what we had raised. Their strategy was uh, not cost efficient. Mm -hmm. Now, most people would freak out and say, well, I'm, not, I'm never going to be able to compete. They're always going to outspend me which is true, but they're trying, that they're also being selective about their channels, which means if I do the exact opposite, if I build very efficient channels, I can acquire customers at a cost that they can't, and so I can afford lowering my pricing at a point that they can't, right? right? And that's exactly what we did. Our, our CAC at Gorgeous is about 30 cents for a dollar for the marketing team. That's about one third what it is generally for companies at that stage. Hmm. Okay. And we estimate customers is, is, uh, more than the average, over a dollar for a dollar. Right. And so they are forced to increase the ACV a lot, and they, which means they can't sell to the bottom of the market or the mid market mm -hmm. where we can. That's my approach. So I look at things like that and I decide what my uh, strategy, what my campaigns and what my uh, growth strategy is going to be based on that. Hmm. Fascinating. And how you spoke about analyzing customer. How do you do that? Um, yeah. So when I look at competitive businesses, I, I pull data from a lot of different places, but honestly, like generally I have very good connections everywhere in the Valley. And so I'm able to get the right kind of information, the revenue, how much they raised, how efficient they are, what they're doing. You've got to realize that any venture-backed startup that has raised a, a few rounds will have sent its deck around to uh, VCs and other people to, mm -hmm. to raise money. That data will percolate through at one moment or another. That makes a lot of sense. And then how do you think about your growth roadmap? So we talked a little bit about the, the general mindset you apply to early stage startups after product market fit. Now, do you even, I mean, do you even use a roadmap anymore? Is it a much more fluid um, type of approach or how do you go about defining the first action items or the first uh, steps to take? Yeah, absolutely. So generally I try to understand like, have we covered the basis of understanding which channels have potential. We might uh, talk a bit about the growth experimentation uh, framework, but 
there's no point in doing experimentation if you don't know what the baseline is. Mm. So you got to set the baseline, you know? Um, and I like setting the baseline in two different ways. What is the minimum uh, performance if you do things like everyone? So you just do outbound emails, automated outbound emails. Cool. You do standard ads on, you know, some Facebook. You do the, the, the minimum class, classic effort to estimate what's the performance of your competitors. You should replicate what they do. Okay. And then you do a manual, extremely custom effort. You see, what is the max performance of that channel? So you're going to do, you're going to have an SDR, like the most beautiful human made email ever for 100, 200 accounts with a video. You're going to do one-to-one ads. Uh, you're going to do some gift campaigns, stuff like that. So, okay, what's the max? Okay, so now you know the boundaries of your system. And once you know that, you also know the costs. Say, so now, can I create the experience of the max conversion rate at a fraction of the cost? Can I bring the top to the cost of the bottom? And that creates margin. So that's kind of like the how I create the roadmap. And I see where's the potential. If I see that there is little difference, there's little uh, a, a gap in the spectrum between max and min on a given channel, I'm like, hmm, this is probably not worth optimizing mm-hmm. or we haven't found what best looks like. I'll push it back for later, okay? And so those things inform me and then help me build uh, the ideas uh, or inform the ideas for the uh, experimentation framework. Are you... When you do that, when you when you pull a lot of data from a lot of channels to identify the basically the 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 highest potential, maybe lowest effort action items, do you use a spreadsheet? Is there a different tool? Do you use pen and paper? Like, how do you? What is what is kind of your your tool? Yeah, um, generally at the early stage, I just use Google Sheets. <laughs> I have to I have to say that it works really well. Um, I will not do attribution until it is absolutely necessary. Uh, that's it's a drag. It's it's a horrible loss of time. It, it becomes important, but it's a pain. Okay, but I think what's important, if you look at some of the work I've done these past years, um, what I've done is convert all of the marketing metrics into a unified uh, do- forecasted revenue metric, dollar metric. All right. And that is very important. And that informs the rest of my strategy. Otherwise, it's hard to compare when you right. do. I mean, you're the massive SEO. You drive traffic to some of your content. How valuable is that? No, hard to say. Now somebody else is going to do a webinar. They have registrants and participants. How valuable is that? And I'm going to do maybe some ad ban emails and some ads. And those are going to drive some responses and some clicks. How valuable is that? And comparing those together... It's hard because you have different types of leads or engaged profiles of customers um, at different steps of the funnel. And those uh, experiments have uh, cost different amounts of time and budget. So they're impossible to compare unless you find a way to aggregate or simplify down that to a unique metric. That's what I've done. And so by using some simple... Um, lead scoring uh, models, uh, forecasting models, we convert all of the engagement metrics into future revenue. That's it. It's just dollars. Okay? And the future revenue has a multiplication factor based on likelihood for any given prospect based on their engagement, based on their size, to convert at a future date, at a future percentage, and a future ACV. 
And so my, my entire team looks only at, at future revenue. And that helps us a lot decide what's the roadmap, where's the highest lift to be had, and also where is it most cost efficient. Is there a specific model you apply to that yes. revenue forecasting? There you go. <laughs> yes. So I can do a plug for my friends at Mad Kudu who do that. Um, and they do that uh, pretty well. And they are actually building in that direction of helping companies understand what is the money that's left on the table and just simplify all the metrics into revenue. Um, and that, I think, is the easiest way to think about it. Otherwise, any, any data scientist can help you out. Makes perfect sense. Um, so in terms of frameworks, do you still use Evelyn? I saw a couple of presentations where you mentioned uh, Evelyn from uh, Dario's from, um, I think it was from Dropbox. Um, and yes. uh, if you still use it, have you adapted the process over time? So yeah, I, I still use uh, Evelyn, who was created by a Dario's contractor, uh, who's now uh, head of growth at uh, Airtable. And so he created Evelyn, which, which stands for... Um, Experiment Velocity Engine uh, when he was at, at Dropbox. And I've made some adaptations. And I think the adaptation is exactly relevant to what we said just before. The standard Evelyn evaluates a project and ideas based on a point-based system, uh, both for effort and for, uh, and for returns for revenue. I transform everything into revenue. Okay? I transform the... Uh, the future impact into revenue and I transform the cost into dollar-based cost. And so that's, that's what's uh, uh, very different. And the reason why it's different is that it helps us um, prioritize, sort the ideas by future revenue impact. That's the first thing. The second thing why it's very important is that um, the reason why I was attracted to Evelyn is because of the challenges I've had in the, my past uh, roles as head of growth in communicating upwards to the CEOs what I was working on, why I was working on it, and what was my impact going to be in the future. Because in a high growth company, the CEOs want to know, gee, what, you know, what's your impact going to be now? Sure. But like, what uh, headcount do you need next quarter or next year? And is how do you justify that headcount? What's the impact going to be? And I said, like, I mean, it's experiments. Like, things could fail. I don't know. And I realized that's not a valid answer, right? With Evelyn, with the adaptation of making it uh, future revenue-based, I can commit to future revenue like a sales leader does. That's the important parallel. I work exactly like a sales team. You think of a sales team. They have prospects, leads, deals, if you want. And everybody understands some of those are going to close and some of those are not going to close, right? No sales team has a close rate of 100%. My experiment is exactly the same thing. I have a close rate, you know, maybe of like 30%, right? And when you're a sales leader, the deals take time to convert into revenue. Same for my experiments. And this kind of like a linear path between the number of deals you, you, your team can work and the revenue, right? And that's about the same for myself. Yeah, I love that framework. I think you can you can apply it to almost anything in marketing, really, right? I think maybe Absolutely. maybe per, for performance marketing, there's a little kind of more rigidity and 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 forecastability, right? But even to SEO, I see a huge potential to create something like that because in in essence, SEO projects have become almost like growth experiments, right? Where you place the bets, you cannot guarantee the outcome, but you can get a rough idea, and the art is tying it to revenue. Yeah, and. 
you're more the SEO expert than I am, for sure. I don't know if it's possible to adapt it. This this uh, framework requires, and you know, I'm, I'm happy to share some screenshots. Um, but uh, this framework requires the ability to measure the impact um, of the experiments, hmm. and so you need to be able to do that. And that brings us back to the topic of attribution and some other things for SEO, which are, which which are complicated, right? Um, but yes. I've done some estimates uh, for SEO-related projects uh, by using Clearbit Reveal and things like that. So there are ways for hundred percent, right? I think I think there's I think I think it's possible. I agree with you. It's it's tricky, but I also think that as SEOs, we tend to be very lazy in that, and that is our um, that is our Achilles heel. You know, like the the best idea dies if you cannot really say how much impact it could potentially have. How do you think about growth experiments? What would you say is a good experiment? What is a bad experiment? And not about the thing you actually test, but more in the way that it is set up. Yeah. So if you go back to uh, the first principles of growth, the principle is that you're an experimentation team. You're there to find things that are not obvious. Okay. If you're working on obvious problems, it doesn't mean it's bad. It means you're a marketing team and and you can't fail. And that is also a question of mindset. If failure is not possible in your role in your company, then that's not growth. That is marketing, that is product, and that's not bad. It's just very different. Okay, so you need to be, you need to think about about failing. And so when you think about experiments, is this something that has no, that we don't know what the outcome is going to be? with a high enough certainty. If you do know, give that to a team who is going to do it well with near perfection because we already know the future impacts. In my case, I don't know. And when I don't know, that changes a few things. I want to cut corners. I want to build an MVP. So the cost of learning the information is low because that is what is going to enable me to ship more experiments in the future, all right, uh, faster, and have higher impact. Again, think like a VC. I'm an angel VC of experiments, right? I can't put all my bets in one startup, right? I can't put all my bets in one experiment. One of them is going to work out out of 10, maybe. And that is where I'm going to put the investment. So when you think of experiment setup, very often the experiment is too big, okay? Takes too long. So there's too much investment, which increases the risk, Okay, and the, there are too many hypotheses which are uh, not broken down into small pieces. So very often, when my team brings me something which is, "Hey, we have this nice big project. We're going to send like outbound emails. We're going to bring some customization with high price and some data sets from here and there." I'm like, "Cool. What's the hypothesis?" And they say, "Well, hypothesis is we customize, personalize the email. We get high response rates." I say, "Have we tested that?" How can we test it? Is there a way that we can test it without doing a three-week sprint of investment, right? And I say, well, can we have an SDR do it for us, all right? Manually, I don't care. Like, spend three days doing it all together, right? And we'll we'll find out. And if the hypothesis is proven, then build it. And very often, I will break down an experiment into the underlying components of metrics hypothesis. Is the lift possible? Uh, that that says everything I think you really need to know about growth experiments and about like going going the way to to run them. Can you talk a little bit about what the most surprising experiment 
is you ever run or maybe one of the most successful ones? Hmm. I think if we, what is insightful for the audience is giving examples of how I'm able to create value where most people don't see value. Uh, I'll give you two. One very recent, um, outbound emails. People generally think outbound emails are horrible and like they are destruction of value. You destroy the time of many people to get the intent of a very few. And that's true for most outbound emails. If you go back to the product that I'm helping with right now, Gorgeous, this, this help us for e-commerce, uh, we have a, uh, a strategy uh, which is around scraping uh, the UPS and FedEx websites uh, to find out uh, which uh, zip codes, which geographies in the US um, have uh, service interruptions for package deliveries, right? Because of snowstorm or whatever, right? We, in parallel, have built a database of all e-commerce warehouses and, and uh, uh, headquarters uh, headquarters companies, right? And we will overlay one with the other in, in the database. And then we will send out emails and we'll say, hey, Kevin, um, I don't know if you're aware, but like, it's likely that your deliveries are going to be impacted by severe delays in the next coming days, which means your customers are going to be asking about their packages and the deliveries and you're going to get more tickets. Are you ready for that? And most of the time, Kevin's going to say, geez, I didn't realize. Thanks. All right. That is value. This email is valuable in itself. Okay. And I'm not annoying them, trying pitching them, asking for a demo. I'm that's the only thing I'm doing. Okay. That's one example. I'll give you another example. At Drift, Drift is a live chat. It's a it's 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 a chat bot, a live chat for salespeople to drive demos. But the underlying hypothesis of Drift is moving people from your website faster to the sales conversation increases conversion rate. So skip the demo form. That's the underlying hypothesis. What my team built was a, um, a system called Get My Response Time, where we had a combination of freelancers, technologies, and crawlers that would um, dynamically request a demo from uh, our prospects' websites, timestamp that, and measure the time their sales team took to respond. And then we'd inject in the outbound email and we saw that in the CRM for our sales team, where that website was compared to their industry standard. And we say, hey, Kevin, your team took about eight hours to respond to a qualified request from a company of 200, which is in your market. And just letting you know, if you cut that in half, you would probably increase your conversions by about 20 to 30%. And then Kevin's the VP of sales, like, oh, there's no way my team responds in eight hours. We said, well, here's the email request, here's the email we got. Do you want to try again? And Kevin will try again and again. And the third time say, hey, like, maybe we should talk, right? And we had VPs of sales just like playing around and around this thing. Again, creation of value, front-loading the cost, requires engineering, great experience, not directing my product. So those are the, the, I'd say the key things that I want to impact. Thanks for that, um, Guillaume. It's so much, so much, so many value bombs that you dropped here. Um, I want to finish with a couple of rapid fire questions. Are you game for that? I'm always ready for that. Awesome. First one, what do you think is your zone of genius? Mm. <laughs> uh, I'm um, stacking technology together, connecting technology together. I'm a plumber of the internet. 
<laughs> I love that term. Um, what have you changed your mind about in the recent years? There is more value in empowering my teams than in doing it myself. As I've grown into being a manager, I've realized that. It's a million dollar lesson. Um, how has failure set you up for success? I'm a master. I failed. I've failed more often than most people. Um, I, for better or worse, I'm somebody with many regrets. People say, oh, you should never have regrets. You should never. I love having regrets. Regrets inform me about the mistakes I've made in the past and remind me why I should not be making the same mistakes again. I am a man full of regrets. Powerful. What do you read regularly? Um, I read a lot about, um, I'd say, uh, how the so uh, behavioral, or you could call it like psychology, or, or things in that in that direction to understand how people work. I often put myself as um, outside of the uh, uh, bubble of humans. Like there's all the humans and there's G who's like halfway between the humans and the aliens. And I'm trying to understand as an anthropologist, what are those humans doing? Why do they work like that? Right. And it's very important to extract yourself from that bubble to understand, like if you're an anthropologist and trying to understand why do this population operate like that, it helps you a ton doing good marketing. Do you have a favorite book that you can recommend about that? There, there are a ton of books. I mean, the the uh, uh, the obvious book there is the uh, the book from uh, Cialdini, um, Influence, uh, which people might not realize, but it is exactly about that. It is the underlying things that influence people to act in a specific way. Um, and if we're talking about books, I can't uh, be talking about books and not pl plug one of my favorite uncommon, uh, I'd say, uh, management books, which is uh, Shackleton's Voyage. Uh, the uh, Irish explorer, uh, Ernest Shackleton, um, and uh, leadership lessons from uh, uh, miserably failing um, in the uh, venture to success, but succeeding once failure has set. Right? That is the most important lesson is that failure comes often and how you react in the face of failure is important. People always say, oh, like this person has succeeded, but that is like a post-analysis. Right? What's important is that failure happens more often than success. Right? So how you react in the face of failure makes you the leader, not the opposite. And that is a lesson that I, that I think a lot of successful people have really embraced. Uh, one of my favorites is Ray Dalio, where he, mm. uh, I think his formula is pain plus reflection equals success. And it's the same concept. It's the same idea. Mm. Last question, who do you look up to or who are several people you look up to? That's interesting. Um, Hmm. The thing is that I'm inspired a lot by uh, dead people who I don't want to, I don't want to be like them, but I still do admire them. So, I mean, I worked at Apple for five years and I met Steve twice. Once when I was a kid, I was like 14 and another one when I was 18 years old. And by all aspects, he was a horrible person and a horrible manager. But by all aspects, he was a genius too. And I think... And I've, I've been at countless like events, uh, employee events where I could hear him and I had a, a deep admiration for, for his genius and his ability 
to focus efforts in one direction, ignore the current status quo uh, is something that I think about often. All right, how can you change the current market understanding of how things operate? Change them completely. Change the game. All right, like, and and that for me is important. And if you look at Apple, their strength is changing the game. That's what I want to do. I'm not going to win in somebody else's game. That's not what I do. Do you think that had something to do with how you develop this mindset for risk-taking and maybe diversification? Yeah. I mean, I've always wanted to do things differently. I always do things differently. Um, in all the aspects of life, you're going to see me skiing on slopes. You won't see me with regular skis. You see me. Like, I, I, I enjoy trying to do things differently than the other people. Um, not so much to differentiate because I, I hate... I deeply hate having the impression that I'm a sheep in with other sheep. I, I, I hate that. And that might not be true. And I don't mean to, that to be disrespectful to, to most people. Like, I, I just, I can't be doing things like others do. It's impossible. I hate it. And so that forces my actions for better or worse. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But because you're diversifying, you, you're not failing in that sense. So, Well, I'm a marketer. So you got to understand that I market the successes because especially in the U.S., people crave for successes. They want to see all the, but most often people don't see that the successes are one out of 10. Right. Of course, I market the successes, but you don't see the countless failures that I have had to work, develop, in, and invest time and effort and money into. Right. Hey, I think we, we came perfectly full circle, right? We, we started with the, uh, the, your mindset. We ended with your mindset. I think there's, there's no better way that, to, to wrap this whole thing up. Uh, so I want to, I want to agree. <laughs> I want to thank you very much for your time. Deeply appreciate you, man. Um, also because you make the game better for everyone, right? And you share knowledge and, uh, you come on podcasts like mine to tell people, um, how we master things and operate. So huge. Thank you for that. Um, Guillaume, where can people find and follow you? Uh, on LinkedIn, um, and on Twitter, LinkedIn is probably the safest. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Kevin, man. That was fire. That's it. Oh, that was, that was amazing, man. Three, two, one.